we have gathered to worship the Lord, to do so from the heart, for he is great and mighty. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy and delight it is to gather together with believers all around the country and the world to worship you. You're the one who has even given us breath so that we might praise you. And so, Lord, now as we have come to the time where we open up your word, we recognize that you have given us your scriptures. You are the God who has spoken. You're the God of revelation. You're the God who has spoken and revealed yourself in creation and specifically in your word. And so we do not take it for granted that we have a copy of that which you have given. So we're asking now through the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes Give us ears to hear that you would indeed instruct us as your people through your scriptures. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a special Sunday for us. This is graduation Sunday for all of the high school graduates out there. We want to tell you our big congratulations. We are so very proud of you. Graduations are like milestones. Uh, They're memorable events. Uh, If you're a runner, a graduation is kind of like when you get a split time in the middle of a race and you're at a certain point and you find out like how you're doing, what your pace is, how things are going. You kind of have an understanding of what is to come when you actually get your split time. And when we come to a graduation, it's like you can stop just for a minute and figure out where am I really at? How am I doing? And where am I going? The Christian life has some parallels to a relay race. And if you've ever been involved in a relay race, you know that this is the baton. And how this works is you've got a runner that's going to come in into the exchange zone. He's going to pass this on to the next runner. You've got to do so still running as hard as you can. You have to stay in your lane. And you cannot drop this baton. I want you to know that a graduation is kind of like an exchange zone to make sure that you've got the baton firmly in your hand so that you can run the race of your life. And how do you do that? How do you run the race of your life? The answer to this key question is found in the book of 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, you have the Apostle Paul telling us what we absolutely need to know to run the race of our life. You only have one life. It's meant to be lived for the glory of God because it's been given to you by God. And if you want to know how to run the race of your life, listen to what he says. The first thing you need to do is you need to look to those who have run before you. Look at it again. Second Timothy chapter one, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. At the very beginning, Paul is making this address to Timothy. In fact, this is the final letter that Paul will write. Uh, Shortly after this, he is actually executed for his faith while he is a prisoner in Rome. And he pens this letter to Timothy, his young protege. 
And he tells him what he absolutely needs to know to run the race of his life. And what he's doing is he's causing Timothy to focus on those who have run before them, before him. And he's saying, look, first of all, at me. Notice how he begins. He says, Paul, I've got clarity as to my call. I'm an apostle. I know that God has specifically sent me out. That's what the word apostle means as an official ambassador for him. I am being used by God to lay the foundation of a faith that is on the built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. I have clarity into my call. And furthermore, he says, this is by the will of God. God's will is being operated and being manifested throughout my life. And he says, according to the promise of life, in Christ Jesus. I don't want you to miss this because this is the essence of Christianity. Christianity isn't just following certain rules. It's not being dedicated to just a couple of key values or to be just identified with a particular group. At its essence and core, Christianity is a relationship. It's a relationship with Christ. It is the promise of life in Christ. Christ literally brings us into his body. We are cleansed from our sin. We are united with Christ forever, this body of believers. And we have, through virtue of his Holy Spirit, life in Christ. That's why our church's mission statement is to glorify God by living out the life that we have in Christ. Life is an acronym for loving God, investing in others, following his word, engaging our world. That is what Christianity is all about. And Paul, I want you to see, has such a Christ-centered orientation. Did you notice in verses 1 and 2, three times he identifies Christ Jesus. Life with God is all about being united with Christ. And Christianity, relationship with Christ actually gives us the blessings that are found in Christ. And you find them in in verse uh, 2, where he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, speaking of the riches of relationship that we have in Christ. Mercy, God's favor, his care and his concern for our difficulties and our need. So not only do we have forgiveness by grace, and the riches of relationship. But we also have his mercy. He loves us tenderly. And he even gives us peace. Peace that makes no sense in this world. Paul would say that it's a peace that surpasses all comprehension. It's peace that comes from really knowing God. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm all about Christ. Not only have I been designated as apostle. I've got clarity as to my role and my responsibilities. I understand that the meaning and purpose of life is to know the life of Christ, to know him. And furthermore, notice what he says in verse three. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So Paul begins by actually drawing attention to himself and saying, listen, I want you to know who I am. But he's, he's doing this very specifically under the work of the Holy Spirit to point out that Timothy, there are many 
that have come before us. In fact, that's what he's highlighting in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Let me tell you something that will make your life so much more meaningful and powerful. See your life as your ministry. Not ministry is like, well, I just do this on this occasion, maybe twice a week or something like that. Some activity where I'm serving others. But see your whole life as a ministry. And that's what Paul does. He says, I see my life as a ministry. I serve God with a clear conscience. And what Paul is doing is he's drawing to mind the pattern that he has presented to Timothy. I serve God with a clear conscience. Now, every single person has a conscience. It's, it's innate. It's given to us by God. And what it is, is it's, it's like a warning system within you. And it also functions as an affirmation. And how it works is this. Our conscience, every single person has one, is kind of aligned to our highest understanding of what is right and what is wrong, wherever we may have received this. And when we do the things that are right, that are noble, that are aligned to what we believe is to be how we're to live life, our conscience affirms us. There's joy, there's gladness, there's happiness, there's a sense of well-being. You keep doing this, you develop what is called integrity. But on the other hand, when you violate your conscience, when you do something that you know to be wrong, you, you say things that you know that are, are not appropriate, you're watching a movie and all of a sudden it starts going in the wrong direction, you ever notice that your conscience like steps in like, whoa, this isn't right. Um, things are moving in a direction in a relationship that you know is totally out of line. What happens is your conscience goes off and it's a warning. It's like this blinking light that says, no, this is not right. And for the Christian, our conscience is informed by the word of God and is actually infused by the spirit of God. And so we understand right and wrong based upon the word that God has given us. And Paul is saying, I've served God with a clear conscience. That doesn't mean that he's perfect. In fact, there's no one perfect but Jesus. What it does mean is that when he sinned, when he transgressed the word, what he did is he would confess it. He would agree with God, this is not right. And he'd receive the cleansing that is found in Jesus. And friends, you and I need to learn how to do just this to experience the cleansing of our conscience that comes when we repent and we confess our sins and experience and know and believe the forgiveness that Christ has given us. And so he says, I want you to know that is how I have lived my life. I serve God with a clear conscience. It's a pattern that I'm seeking to pass on to you. And furthermore, he says, it is the way my forefathers did. All of the men and women who have walked with God prior to Paul's time, who had passed on the baton of a vibrant, living, true faith in the living God, he says that's how they lived as well. That is at the heart of the Christian life, is to live life in Christ and do so honestly before him. And to recognize that when we sin, our conscience informs us and we confess it. And what Paul is doing is saying, look at those 
who have run before you. You can look at me. Look at those who have gone before me. You see, we have an amazing heritage. And reflecting on your heritage has a way of refocusing you and actually calling you to action. An amazing example of this would be what occurred on the Normandy invasion in, during World War II. On June 6, 1944, the Western Allies made a strategic strike on the beaches near Normandy, France. And what they were doing is looking to open up a second front to bring an end to the tyranny brought about by Adolf Hitler and the National Socialist regime. And so they opened up this front. It was a well-planned, massive invasion. And there were many heroes on that day of June 6, 1944. But one of those heroes was a guy by the name of Theodore Roosevelt III, or Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Rather an amazing story. He is the oldest son of President Theodore Roosevelt and First Lady Edith. When World War II started, he actually uh, returned to full active duty back in the Army when he was in his 50s. On June 6th, 1944, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was a brigadier general. He was the very first man to make it onto Utah Beach. But let me give you something else that you need to know. He was not only the first, he was the only general to be a part of any of the original landings on those first wave of landings on any of the beaches. He did so as the oldest soldier as a part of this massive allied assault. At age 56, he had a heart condition. He also was somewhat crippled up with arthritis. In fact, had to use a cane and did so even in the invasion. And he is also, by the way, the only father who also had a son that was a part of the invasion. His son uh, was uh, Quentin, Captain Quentin Roosevelt II. He was also on the first wave on Omaha Beach. His efforts and how he led were so gallant that he was recommended for the Distinguished Service Cross. 36 days after the invasion of Normandy, um, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. died. And he was then posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. He said that the reason that he felt like he must be the first and that he must go back into the army and that he must lead the assault is because that's what he understood his dad to have done at the Battle of San Juan Hill in Cuba. And if his dad would lead the assault, he had a legacy to continue. And even his own son was following in his footsteps. Friends, that is the power of a legacy. And that's what Paul is appealing to Timothy to. He's saying, Timothy, you know my life. You know how I've lived it before God with a clear conscience. I want you to know I stand in a long line of faithful men and women who have lived like this, and the baton is being passed into your hand. 
You are a part of this long line of legacy. That's why he says in verse 3, as I constantly remembered you in my prayers night and day. And notice also this pattern that Paul leaves for Timothy. It's not only to pass on a legacy, it's to do so with love. Look at verse 4. Longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. And what Paul is doing is recounting that very last time when they had that short visit in Ephesus, shortly before Paul would be imprisoned again. And and he recalls this time where Timothy was even just moved to tears. The depth of care and love that these men shared, the camaraderie of the faith. And I want you to know that the people who make the biggest difference in our spiritual lives are those who love us while they lead us. Leading well comes from learning how to love. And I want you to know this is how Jesus led his men. In John 13, remember in verse 1, it says this of Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the uttermost, to the very end. He loved them completely. And if you want to see what does this really look like, if you're a leader, you're a parent, grandparent, you've got a ministry in our church, you're a leader in our community, you're a leader at your place of employment, if you want to learn how to really lead effectively, you want to take a few cues from the Apostle Paul. You need to learn how to love while you lead. And we get a picture of this like in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Remember when Paul made that statement? For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 7, he says this, For it is only right for me, me to feel this way about you all. Why? Look at this. Because I have you in my heart. Since both in the imprison, my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You can't manufacture this, but God will give it to you according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. And he says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, I want you to run the race of your life. Look at those who have gone before you. Look at the pattern that I have left you. But then in verse 5, he's going to draw our attention to two more examples that Timothy is supposed to learn from. People who have run the race before him. And he says in verse 5, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Timothy, you don't have to just look at my life, says Paul. I want you to look at your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Look at their faith. It's just like yours. It is a sincere faith. Uh, means it's actually genuine, unfeigned. It's real. Timothy's grandmother and his mother, they didn't pass on like a religion. They didn't just pass on like, well, you got to just follow these certain practices. 
they passed on to him an authentic, genuine faith. What it really means to know Jesus Christ and to walk with him. And in the case of Timothy's mother, she had to do it alone. She had her mother, Lois, but her husband, we have no record that he ever placed his faith in Christ. Timothy grew up in a home where dad was going in his own pagan directions, would not repent, would not believe the gospel, but mom believed. And all the difficulties that would come in a relationship like that, and yet she passed on the most important thing that she ever could, and that is a sincere faith. I want you to know the strongest influence on any person's life is their home, their family. When you read a good biography, do you notice how they always start with family lineage? They look at the grandparents and the parents. They describe them. They try to help a person understand the background in which this person, that's the focus of the biography, came from. Because the strongest influence on any individual is the home, their family. And that is, shouldn't surprise us that the family is under attack. Redefine, rip it apart, shred it. And think, well, it won't really matter to the kids. It will. And in Timothy's case, he came from a home where dad never believed, but mom continued to believe. And she passed on this great faith, this vibrant personal faith to her son. And I want you to know there is no higher calling for a grandmother or a mother than to invest her life in the development of her children. That's what we see here with Eunice. And Lois, just pouring her life into her son. You know, an amazing example of that would be to look at Sonia Carson. Now, you may not be familiar with Sonia, but I'm pretty sure you know her son. You ever heard of Ben Carson, that esteemed, renowned surgeon at John Hopkins? Uh, then he later was a presidential candidate. He currently serves as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development I want to give you just a little glimpse of a mother's love of making the most of a very difficult situation. We know a lot about Sonia Carson because um, Ben has spoken of her on multiple occasions in his speeches, written about her in his books. Um, she's, she has made a significant influence in his life. We really don't know much about Ben's dad because Ben's dad kind of is out of the picture. In fact, this family experiences divorce when Ben is eight years old. And he doesn't really talk much about his dad, Robert Solomon Carson. Because at eight years old, his mom and his brother, uh, Curtis, they have to move into a group home in inner city Detroit. Ben and his family would grow up so very poor in a single-parent household. But I want you to know that Ben's mom was determined to do everything she could for her boys. One of the things that she did, starting in elementary school, she would have her boys write a book report, like every couple of weeks. And she actually had the boys turn it into her. And this was a pattern that they would follow throughout elementary school. But when Ben gets to junior high, he makes a startling discovery. He came to understand 
that his mother couldn't read. All these years of giving these book reports, not assigned by school, but assigned by mom, he had assumed that she had been kind of going through every word by word, but she was illiterate. You see, what Sonia Carson did is she gave what she could. She gave interest, accountability, and courage to demand extra work so that her boys would be everything that they should be and could be. And it paid off. And how she lived out her faith is actually being translated for how Ben Carson lives out his faith today. This distinguished Christian. Even his name commands respect. Where does that all get started? Well, you can kind of look at his mother, Sonia Carson. Do not underestimate the power of a godly home, godly parents, a godly mother. Charles Stanley, I heard him talk about his mother, who apparently at night she would come and she would pray with Charles before he'd go to bed. And it was like one of those meaningful and deep and sincere prayers. And so when Charles Stanley would get up early in the morning to do his paper out, he found himself thinking about what his mom had just been praying for him the night before. And he found that it started spurring a prayer life of his own while he delivered his prayers. Just once again, it's the power of modeling a sincere faith. And that is exactly what happened with Timothy. And when you come to verse 5, you know what verse 5 is? It's the exchange zone. It is where the baton of the faith, where the past flows into the present, in the hope of the future, is passed on to Timothy. And he says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Now, I want you to know that passing a baton in a relay race is not easy. It's difficult, especially if you're exhausted and you've got to pass that baton on to stay in your lane, it, it's, it's challenging. Now, in the Christian life, there is no just particular zone. Like, you've only got this short little period of time. There's really no defined zone. But when your lives and paths intersect, it's the exchange zone. In the case of families, it can be for years. Like if you want to see the exchange zone in the, in the Old Testament, go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says in verses 6 and 7, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Teaching happening formally and informally at home, at church. I want you to know there's thousands of conversations especially those times where there's a problem, there's a challenge, there's a great difficulty. This is how the faith is passed on. But one thing you have to, you have to absolutely be clear on, no matter how many discussions, how wonderful your home is, all that you try to do, all the times that you run them to church and to youth group and, and engage their heart, only God can bring spiritual life. Because you and I are spiritually dead until we have life in Christ. That's why Paul emphasized the promise of life in Christ Jesus. 
like the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Or like he says in verse 4, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Only God can change a heart. We pray as parents, we teach, we live, we sacrifice, we give it our all, we show them what failure looks like and how we recover, we confess sin, we try to model a sincerity, but only God can change a heart. And he does. And Paul says, I am mindful you've got a sincere faith. The baton is in your hand. But you know, in a relay race, when you make that exchange, when you have this baton and it's put in the other person's hand, when you go back to the inside of the track, you don't just like pick up your sweats and just walk off and like go to the locker room or just sit in the stands or go hang out with the team. No, you know what you do? You cheer with everything you've got left for the next runner. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, Timothy, the baton's in your hand. You have a sincere faith. Run the race of your life. And I want you to know that I am so eternally grateful for the men and the women who've invested in me, who shared the gospel with me while I was a teenager in high school, who were there to disciple me in my early college years, and for all the mentors that I have and continue to have. What they have done is they have not only given me a genuine model of what it means to know Christ. They've encouraged my path. And friends, we all have people, you, especially you graduates, think right now of the men and the women, your parents, your grandparents, pastors, people at school, your friends that have encouraged you in the faith. And what we want you to do, friends, we want you to run the race of your life. And you know how you do that? You want to look to those who have run before you. And second of all, notice what Paul says. You want to do this. You want to live in the grace that God has given you. In verse 5, Paul highlights that you have a sincere faith. And I want you to know one of the most important things you could ever learn as a Christian is how to cultivate and continue the fires of this faith as you go through life and all of its challenges. And that's why he says in verse 6, For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. This is a present tense verb, kindle afresh, and it means to keep the fire alive. Do whatever it takes to keep the fires of the faith going. In fact, he says, to kindle afresh the gift of God, this grace gift that God has given you. Not only life in Christ, but you need to know that when you and I place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, he actually gives you spiritual gifts so that you and I can serve him. They're in two general categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11, he said, as each one has received a special gift, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so 
as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has given you life in Christ. He has given you gifts so that you could serve him. And so he says in verse 7, you want to make sure that you are living in the grace that God has provided. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. God hasn't given you fear. Fear is the enemy to faith. Fear will paralyze you. Faith will allow you to move forward. And we can be afraid of a lot of things, like fear of rejection. Just look at how much human behavior is oriented and centered on, oh, I want people to like me. I don't want rejection. So I'm afraid of this. This becomes almost like the guiding force in so many people's lives. And so what they do is they're governed by fear, fear of what people might think of them. There's also a fear of failure. It's like, well, I might, I might not do really well, or I might wreck all this, or I'm not really good at these sort of things. So what happens is we got a fear of failure. And you never try. And so you always give up. It's like you never even really get on the track and run because, well, I think other people are faster than me and I don't want to be a failure. And I certainly don't want to be seen like a failure. So I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. I want you to know something. You are going to fail. I fail on a regular basis. It's just part of being human. But fear, fear of failure It'll paralyze you. It'll keep you on the sidelines. What we want to do is we move forward by faith. There's other fears like fear of the unknown or fear that somehow God isn't going to be with us when he promised, I'll never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And Timothy had fears. That's why Paul's addressing him. He says, listen, God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity. Furthermore, uh, Timothy even had physical health issues. They're even written about in 1 Timothy He faced adversity. You do, I do, we all, we face adversity. But don't be paralyzed by your fears. Because God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but of what? But of power and love and discipline. Live in the grace that God has given you. Everything we need. Power, spiritual strength. Kindle afresh this gift. Keep going back to God. If you're like me, you feel drained on a pretty regular basis. What we have to do is learn to go back to the source of our strength, which is God. The riches of relationship, this grace that he gives us. He gives us power. He's given us a spirit of power. He's given us love. Love not based on fleeting feelings, but love as a commitment of one's will that you will do in the best interests of another, that you're committed to individuals, especially when it's challenging and it's difficult. I want you to know you are going to have relationships that are going to try you. They're going to be difficult. What you're going to need is love. You can't manufacture the kind of love that you're going to need, but God can supply it, and he does so through his grace. He gives us the ability to love and discipline. Self-discipline, the ability to have a measured control over one's thinking 
and their actions. God will give you this ability. It's found in relationship with Christ. And so you keep going back. You keep living in the grace that God has given us. Which means life is hard. Adversity is real. We're human. We have a tendency to feel down and discouraged and depressed. Things don't always work out the way we want. If you base your life on your circumstances, you're going to be kind of in this perpetual pit. But if you base your life on Jesus Christ, the promise of life in Christ, what you can do is cultivate the riches of living in his grace. And I like to tell you just how it works best for me. Things that I've found to be very helpful that I want to pass on to you, especially you graduates. First of all, develop like spiritual practices, like learning just to pray authentically to God, to develop practices of studying and actually being in his word so that your mind is actually filled with truth, so that your heart is once again refocused upon God, and learn how to meditate upon scripture, to think about the words, not just read it and done, but to think about it. Another thing that I've found to be so very helpful in cultivating this grace relationship with Jesus is to have developed a personal mission statement. And I go back to my mission statement on a regular basis. And mine is simply to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life that we have in Christ. I pray through it. I can recalibrate my life in about 30 seconds by just praying and just being reminded, this is what God has called me to do in my life. Something else I've found to be very helpful in just living in God's grace is to fellowship with life-giving believers. To actually have friends in your life that encourage your faith, that you can actually talk about your relationship with the Lord. Yeah, it's good to have friends that can talk about football and all the other things that are going on in life. But you actually have friends that you can talk about Jesus, about what you're learning, about what you're struggling with. Which leads me to the final thing that I want to give to you. Make sure that you find good mentors in your life. Find mentors that will disciple you, that will encourage you, that will correct you, that will help you work through and process issues and difficulties that you're facing, that are going to be there to encourage you to do the right thing and to walk with God. Because I want you to know that an authentic faith regularly has to be renewed. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, Timothy, I want you to run the race of your life. When you get to chapter 4, he says, I have finished my course. But Timothy, you're in the midst of yours. It's growing in the grace of Christ. That's how we run the race of our life. That's why Paul emphasized grace so much in all of his letters. Even in the book of 2 Timothy in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And with this letter, Paul is basically saying, The baton is in your hand. And for all of us who know Christ, and especially you graduates, the baton is in your hand. 
How do you run the race of your life? Well, look to those who have run before you and live in the grace that God has given you and run to the glory of God the race of your life.